66 books in the Bible. One... Come on, come on. 66 books in the Bible, one revelation. It is still the revelation of Jesus Christ. After all, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? And after appearing in all His glory to John, we read that in Revelation chapter 1, then Jesus instructed John to write the things which are. Write the things which you have seen, and he had seen Jesus glorified. Write the things which are, Revelation 1.19, and that's where we are, in the things which are. Both in our study, but also in the age, we remain in the things which are. Seven letters to the church in and across the church age. Last week we saw how historical Thyatira typifies Roman Catholicism. Prophetically, beginning in the 600s A.D. And I need to speak to that a moment because we did not look condescendingly at the Catholic Church. Rather, corporately and personally, we receive all of these letters. We do see shades and types in these letters of different systems, if you will, of the church across the church age. But Jesus is talking to us all. And I have no business sitting in judgment of other believers in Jesus Christ, whatever their system may be. And yet, and yet as, as a member of the church, it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And we need to be willing to look at ourselves. And by the way, if you haven't already been, you may find yourself offended by what he has to say. Les and I were discussing this just this last week, and he reminded me how I've said before that over the years, God's Word has offended me many times. It has. I've been in study and I've said, Lord, what is this? How can you say that? Wait a minute, that's not what I was taught. Hang on there, Jesus. This is a different piece of information than I clearly understood. And he moves me out of the book of opinions and into his word, which is where we are best suited to be. His word has offended my opinions and assumptions many times. And what I realize, what I hope we all realize as we study through these letters to the church that Jesus loves His church far too much to pull His punches. He lets them land. And we would be wise to receive them. He said in Revelation 3.19, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. And so last week, Jesus gave Thyatira His most severe warning yet of any of the letters. But along with that severe warning, don't miss the fact that Thyatira also got a promise of shepherd rule in the kingdom, which is fantastic. And yet a few people didn't hear that because a few people walked out last Sunday. During second service, we had some get up and leave. Well, Rick, maybe they were just going to get coffee or check the kids. No, no, I have it on good authority, our security team. 
But there were some who were offended by what I had to say. Didn't stay long enough to hear all the teaching. Listen, I get it. I do understand. Haven't had that happen very often, but it's happened over the years. We've had people stand up and gather their stuff and, and out they go, frustrated at what they're hearing. Not happy with the words coming out of my mouth. It always sends me immediately into reflection. Did I say something that's not right? Lord, am I speaking your word? Did I say something that I really shouldn't have said? You try sitting up here every week and saying things and not offending people. (laughs) But you know what? I I thought this through a lot this week. and, And I realized, you know when we're offended? When we're most easily offended as Christians... It's when our deeply held traditions, institutions, or customs are questioned or challenged. When someone actually has the audacity to question my upbringing, my understanding. I love the church. But you know what? The church hasn't always loved me. Anyone relate to that? <laughs> I was saved in the church. But the church did not save me. I have great hope for the church, but I will never put my hope in the church. You see, while I identify with the church, my identity is not in the church, but in Jesus Christ. And when your identity is in Jesus, you can flow with other people. You can even be offended by brothers or sisters and still love them because Jesus is the point. And we can move together and learn together and grow together. And when I remember that my identity is in Christ, His truth always outweighs my offense. Now after sharing all that, I'm sure some of you are thinking, oh, i got to get up and go to the bathroom, but I am not getting up now. <laughs> By the way, if your feathers were at all ruffled last week... <laughs> At least Jesus had some positive things to say to Thyatira. With Sardis, you have to look awfully hard to find a single positive. Other than Jesus saying, there are a few of you left. Listen to it. Revelation chapter 3 verse 1, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you're alive, but you are dead. Wake up! Strengthen the things that remain which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you've received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And my single prayer this morning, Lord Jesus, says that you give us an ear to hear what you have to say today. In Jesus' name. Amen. The history of the church, blessed as it has been, has also been fraught with Christians who have left their first love, like Ephesus. Christians who have suffered greatly, like Smyrna. 
Christians who have caved in to compromise, like Pergamos, or believers who invite immorality and idolatry even, like Thyatira. No season or system or people group within Christendom has gotten it all down. And in this age and in this season, we don't have it all down. But, here's the good news. There's always been a remnant. There has always been a few people in Sardis. A remnant of believers. A few faithful, spirit-led, Bible-fed followers of Jesus Christ. A few who are in Sardis, as he says. Sardis is an interesting name for a city. It could have two possible definitions. One is red ones. Red ones, because the Sardius stone was a red stone. We'll see the the Sardius stone later on uh, in the next chapter, actually, in Revelation. A red stone, so some people think, well, maybe it means red ones. And yet, Sardis, derived from the Hebrew sherit, means remnant. A remnant. I have a remnant there in Sardis. I have a few people, the Lord says. Now, in the Bible, backing this up and thinking it through a little bit, the word remnant is most often associated with Israel, with the Jewish people. Genesis 45, verse 7, the first mention, first use of the word remnant in the Scriptures, sherith, that that Hebrew word, Joseph is speaking to his brothers. Joseph, who's down in Egypt, sold into slavery, but ultimately, short version of the story, rose up to second over all of Egypt. And the family comes down from from a, a drought and famine in the land of Israel, comes down to Egypt, and Joseph sets them up. But before he does, he's speaking to his brothers. They are just figuring out who he is, and they are in a panic. And Joseph says, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by great deliverance God was sure to keep a remnant Romans 11.5 Paul is talking about Israel Paul says there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice so again Israel the remnant this is important to understand That the remnant speaks of Israel so often throughout the Bible. And yet here, Jesus is very clearly speaking to the church when He says there's a remnant in you. God's always had believers. There has always been a remnant on the earth. There has always been in every season of the church where the church at large might be off. There's always a remnant. Now, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 13 real quickly. Matthew 13. Seven kingdom parables in Matthew 13. Seven letters to the church in Revelation 2 and 3. Is it, is it you know, a, a surprise that it would be that way? Is it just coincidental? No. I do not believe it is. At first I wondered until we started to look at the parallels. The next kingdom parable, in the order of the parables, the fifth one. Now we're in the fifth letter, the letter to Sardis. And in the kingdom parable, Matthew 13, 44, Jesus says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. 
Now when Jesus tells the parable, the field is the world. He's already given that as he's explained the wheat and the tares parable. That explanation still works. The field is the world. And in the world, a man finds a treasure, sells all that he had to buy it. Well, the man is none other than Jesus Christ. The field is the world. Jesus is He Himself, 1 John 2.2, who is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. He buys the entire field in the parable, understanding that He did everything to purchase, if people would trust Him, everything necessary to purchase the entire field, the whole world. Isn't that stunning? The whole world could be saved. If people would simply put their trust in Jesus Christ. But in that field, there's a treasure. What's the treasure? Israel. The treasure is Israel. God speaks of Israel several times in the Hebrew Scriptures. Exodus 19, verse 5. Psalm 135, verse 4. He refers to them as His peculiar treasure. The treasure in the field. The field is the world. The man is Jesus. And the treasure is Israel. But right now, in this season of the world, the treasure remains buried. In fact, Ezekiel talked about a valley of dry bones, right? And the people of Israel, mostly secular, the vast majority secular in the world. There are believing Jews and there are believing Jews in Messiah who are simply part of the church. But there are those who remain buried and to the world to look at Judaism sees Judaism as not even as a treasure, doesn't even recognize the treasure that is Israel until Israel recognizes Messiah. And then that treasure will be seen for what it is. But you might say, okay, well, if that's Israel, then how does this fifth parable parallel the fifth letter to the church of Sardis? Does it apply? Only when the church is buried in the field. Only when it's ineffective and lifeless. Only when the church appears to be dead. It's a shocking thought that Jesus did everything that was necessary to buy the church as a treasure. And yet the church would remain buried in this field? Back in Revelation... Chapter 3, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, Sardis. Now, i got to give you some background, both historically and prophetically. We'll do that first, and then we're going to come back and move through this letter to see how these things apply. And listen carefully, because you will find hints both in history and in Sardis as a church prophetically, you will find and hear hints that are then spoken of directly in the letter. Ancient Sardis, what do we know? It's one of the oldest cities in what was at that time the Lydian Empire, which was all of Asia Minor, which would include the entire region of these seven cities of the seven churches, Lydia, and the capital of Lydia, 2,000 years before Christ. So this is an old, ancient city. The capital was Sardis. Sardis rose up there in the Lydian Empire, It's where the kings built their citadel on the upper part of Sardis and then the lower part of Sardis would be where the city was. That citadel built on the north face of Mount Tmolus. At its base, running like a moat, is the Pactolus River. 
which was about two miles away from the river Hermas. The citadel was fortified on its face, but then there were sharp cliffs on three sides surrounding it, so it was impenetrable in the upper city. Couldn't get in. Only one way in, and that was up to a massively fortified entrance. Sardis was celebrated for what was called its golden sands. The sand literally had a a sheen of gold to it, which they discovered was actual gold. There was gold in them, bar rivers, <laughs> in the Pactolus, in the river Hermas, and they began to mine that gold, and in Sardis for the first time, figured out a way to separate gold from silver. To come up with the most pure metals in history, it began in Sardis. In fact, the first gold coins were minted in Sardis. Interesting. Those gold coins bore on their face the patron deity of Sardis, their pagan goddess, Sibylle. And Sibylle was a half-human, half-goddess, and they believed she had the power, get this, to raise the dead. That was their patron goddess. The most famous king of Sardis was a king by the name of Croesus. He was the wealthiest man in the world at the time. King Croesus, or Croesus, if you want to say it that way. But in 548 BC, his wealth caught the eye of the Persian king, Cyrus. So now we've moved ahead. 548 BC, Cyrus comes in and surrounds the city with his Persian army. But they can't get in. Everybody in the lower city has gone up to the upper city. They're walled in. They're they're tucked in there safe. And all the Persian army trying to figure out a way in. Cyrus said there will be great gifts of gold to any man who can figure out a way into that citadel. And so they waited. And they watched. One day, one of the guards of the people of Sardis, one of the sardines, dropped... dropped his helmet and it went bouncing down the side down the cliff face onto the ground (laughs) early evening came and some of the Persian soldiers noticed out of nowhere this little guy popped up grabbed his helmet and disappeared next thing they knew he was back up on the wall and they figured out there's a way up there's got to be a a passageway. Well, they discovered it, a, a stairway, if you will, that went right up the side, up into the city. That night, while the guards slept, the Persian army made its way up those stairs into the city and conquered the entire city. What's interesting about Sardis is that didn't just happen once. <laughs> that happened a second time when Antiochus Epiphanes, that Greek Seleucid ruler, uh, or ruler, came down and he did the same thing. While the people slept, right up the side, in and conquered the city in 214 B.C. Like the philosopher Hegel said, history will teach us nothing. They didn't learn from their own history and Sardis became known as the city asleep. The snoozing sardines, if you will. (laughs) A people caught dead to rights. Historically, we don't know exactly when the church began in Sardis, but prophetically, this letter speaks to the church of the Protestant Reformation. Denominationalism today. 
And we may step on some toes this morning because what's interesting about the Bridge Fellowship being an independent, non-denominational fellowship, which doesn't make us better or worse than anybody else. We just happen to be a group of Bible-believing Christians who have gathered together, and there are multiple denominations represented right here. If you look into your background, and if we started to you know, call out what church did you go to at one time or, or another before coming to the bridge, we would find multiple denominations represented here, which makes it really easy to step on toes. <laughs> but this letter is to the Protestant Reformation, denominationalism. One of the earliest reformers came along. And remember, we talked about Thyatira last week, about 600 to 1520 or so specifically, but yet still in existence, the Roman Catholic Church today. Also now, we come into about, oh, the 14th century. 1350, 1360, long about that time, a man rose up by the name of John Wycliffe. You've heard the name Wycliffe. Wycliffe Bible Translators. We've sent our own, uh, the Sweeney family. They are missionaries with Wycliffe Bible Translators. They come from John Wycliffe, who refuted Catholic doctrines in the 14th century. He was saying, wait a minute, transubstantiation, that's not biblical. He taught uh, specifically against the need for a priest to mediate between a person and God. In fact, he said the main job of the priest should be to teach the Bible. They didn't like that. didn't like this Wycliffe getting all up in their face. John Wycliffe said, The laity ought to understand the faith, and since the doctrines of our faith are in the Scriptures, believers should have the Scriptures in a language familiar to the people, as opposed to Latin. And to this end, the Holy Ghost endued them with knowledge of all tongues. And so the Bible began to, under Wycliffe, he wanted to see the Bible translated into all languages so that all people could read and study and know for themselves. It was Wycliffe who said, We asked God then of His supreme goodness to reform our church as being entirely out of joint to the perfectness of its first beginning. Wycliffe suffered a stroke and he died on December 28, 1384. At the age of 64. A young man. (laughs) But many of his followers ended up dying as martyrs. Carrying the torch, if you will, that he had lit for reformation in the church. Wycliffe loved the church, by the way. He didn't throw out the church. He didn't quit going to church and start his own home study because he was so mad at the church. He continued to serve the church. He just called out the deficiencies in the church. Well, when Wycliffe's disciple, a man by the name of John Huss, was burned at the stake for carrying on his teachings, they actually exhumed John Wycliffe's bones, burned them to ash and dump the ashes in the Swift River in Oxford, England as an example. People then continued to protest the corruption that was seen going on in the Catholic Church. And some say the Reformation began in the 14th century with John Wycliffe and others, John Huss, bishops, Ridley and Latimer, different people that you can read about and hear about who gave their lives, who literally were burned at the stake for quote-unquote heresy because they opposed Catholic doctrine. 
14th century. Did the Reformation begin then? Most people attach it more formally to October 31st, 1517. What happened on that day? Martin Luther tacked up his 95 theses on the front door of the University of Wittenberg in direct defiance of the Roman Church. What's interesting is if you read Luther's 95 theses, many of them are very Catholic. Today, in fact, there are many things he said in his theses that are biblically incorrect. But it was an act of defiance. Luther's an interesting, interesting man. Interesting character in the history of the church. God, I believe, used Martin Luther. And yet, Martin Luther was deeply flawed. He knew that. In fact, at one point, he he became a monk out of a promise to get himself out of a lightning storm that had him so scared, he just he prayed to the patron Saint Anne, get me out of this and I'll become a monk. Well, he got out of it, so he became a monk. But as such, he was so distressed by his own sin nature, so constantly afflicted by guilt and shame, his fellow monks hated him. <laughs> they thought he was nuts. I mean, Luther beat his body daily with whips. Anytime there was a simple thought, he was lashing himself till he was black and blue. He punished himself by sleeping outside in temperatures below freezing. Luther almost died several times. He was so desperate to try to live a godly life, but was absolutely overwhelmed by his sin and by the enemy. Finally, the monk said, look, dude, you can't stay here. I'm paraphrasing. (laughs) And they sent him off to Rome. And Luther, on his way to Rome, thought, maybe this is my chance. Perhaps I can have an audience. I can have counsel from from maybe even the Pope himself on how I can get over this, this shame and this guilt that was constant in his life. On the way there, he became deathly ill. And he had to pause and stay in a monastery in the Alps. One night there in the Alps in a feverish state, the monks there heard him wailing and mentally tormenting himself over his many sins. And when he woke, one of the monks there told him, you need to read Habakkuk. Why? Well, Habakkuk means wrestler, and you are one who is wrestling with God. So... Luther stayed in that monastery a bit longer. He read and he wrestled and he read and he wrestled until a single verse changed his life and changed the trajectory of the very church itself. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Faith. That struck Luther like a bolt of lightning. In that Alpine monastery, Martin Luther found grace. Grace by faith in God alone. The shame was gone. The sin no longer had a foothold. It was faith in His grace that grace alone can save a man. And so Luther began to be a voice for reform in the Catholic Church that he had felt had poured so much guilt and shame on his life. Now it was grace and it was faith and the flames of reformation spread even further. In Switzerland, Zwingli was preaching for reform. Calvin and Beza in Geneva. Hamilton and Knox, Wishart in Scotland. 
Tyndale and, and Bunyan in England. And suddenly all of these were bringing the word of reformation and change. And I encourage you to read the history because the fires of reformation are very bright. The lives that people gave up, the sacrifice they made, even to unchain the Bible from the pulpit as it were and get it back into the hands of the people was pretty remarkable in that era, in that time. There were three original tenets of the Reformation. Number one, sola scriptura. Sola scriptura, that is scripture alone. Scripture alone. We don't have, well, I guess we do have a statement of faith. It's attached to our bylaws for the Bridge Christian Fellowship. But if you ask me to show you our statement of faith, I will hand you a Bible. Because it's Scripture alone. That's the statement of faith. The only reason we have one written down is because legally we're supposed to. But this is the word that we adhere to. Sola Scriptura. Secondly, sola gratia. Grace alone. Grace alone is what saves a man, saves a woman. Number three, sola fide. Sola fide. Faith alone. Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, sola scriptura, gratia, fide. These were the three original tenets, and this is what spread. And people began saying, wait, that is so simple. That is so clear. That's so understandable. I I can follow that. As a layman, or as a lame man, I can follow that. I hear these words, it makes sense. There were two more that were added to those three original tenets, and that is sola Christus. Christ alone. And finally, sola Deo Gloria, glory to God alone. And with that, the Protestant fire blazed hot and strong for a time. For a time. We need to ask the tough question this morning. And that question is, how's the fire burning in the field today? How are the Protestants and and Reformed and denominational churches doing with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now listen to the letter. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. As with every letter, Jesus begins with a component of his character. Starts off sharing just one or two, perhaps, traits of his very nature. We know the seven stars represent seven angels or seven pastors, perhaps, seven messengers of the churches. He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, he has the seven stars. He has the messengers. By the way, If your pastor isn't preaching Jesus, find another church. If your pastor isn't teaching the Word of God, you need to be where the Word is being taught. What about the seven spirits? He who has the seven spirits of God. Well, we already talked about that in chapter 1. The seven spirits very simply speaks of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. Remember, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him like that central shaft of the lampstand, the Spirit of the Lord. And the Spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and strength 
and knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Seven lamps, seven characteristics, seven traits, if you will, of the Holy Spirit. Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9 says, The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that He may strongly support those whose heart is completely His. Well, Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10 says, These are the seven eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. Speaking of His Spirit. His Spirit. Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. We'll see this in just a couple or three weeks. John sees the Lamb having, having listen, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out throughout all the earth. Seven eyes, seven spirits sent out through all the earth. This is the Holy Spirit. And Jesus comes to Sardis with the seven stars and with the seven spirits of God. Why does He come in this letter? Why is He declaring this trait? Because Protestant, Reformed, denominational churches have, in my opinion, systematically classified, codified, and categorized the Spirit right out of the church. We don't need the Holy Spirit. I mean, we'll give Him a nod in worship. We'll reference Him perhaps in Bible study or prayer, but but we really don't need the Spirit. We have our traditions now. We've got our standards We have our structures. We've got our boards and committees and methodologies. We've got Robert's Rule of Order. We know how to do things. We've got our seminars and we've got our books and we've got our our traveling speakers. We've got our experts and they can all tell us how to do church. What do we need the Spirit for? Note that Jesus shows up at the dead church declaring the Holy Spirit. The one who has the Spirit. I fear that in denominational Christianity today, prayer becomes more like a brief prologue to more important matters. Listening and waiting on the Spirit, that's a luxury, if not a frivolous waste of our time. And so what happens? The ear goes deaf. We no longer speak to God. We no longer need so much the Holy Spirit so we are no longer able to even hear when He does speak because we don't address it. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 early on, the Apostle Paul said, do not quench the Spirit. This is God's Word. This is not Pastor Rick trying to drive something home. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise the propheteia. That is the prophetic utterances. But with that, Paul says, in essence, don't be an idiot. Those are my words. He says, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. You know what I like about Christianity? It truly is a thinking person's religion. You don't just accept everything blindly. You study to show yourself approved. You seek to understand the truth. You examine everything carefully. What any pastor's teaching, you listen and you examine. I was challenged last week, wonderfully, had, had some great email conversation with a sister who brought up some very interesting points. She was wrong, but, but she brought up some things. You know, she made me think. I love that. 
We examine everything carefully, but we do not quench the Spirit. And yet that's exactly what the Church of the Reformation has done. One of the most subtle forms of evil, remember Paul says, abstain from every form of evil, one of the most subtle forms is the soulish denial of the Holy Spirit. And we might not even say it out loud. You might say, don't quench the Spirit. Oh yeah, well we don't quench the Spirit. The reality is we deny the Spirit when we don't address Him, when we don't listen to Him, when we don't pray and wait to see what He desires to do. Don't quench the Spirit. Now, I'm not saying that all prots, refs, and denoms have done that. Protestants, Reformed in denominations. Yeah. I'm not saying that all have done this. There's always a remnant. What's marvelous is in any church you attend, any church you visit, any church you go to, you're going to find a remnant. You're going to find some faithful believers. You're going to find some passionate followers of Jesus Christ. Amen. That's a good thing. And I'm so thankful for that. And by the way, as an independent, non-denominational fellowship, we here at the Bridge have had many bright spiritual seasons of listening to and following the lead of the Holy Spirit, but we've also had several dull, solical seasons as well. Where we just weren't paying attention, we had more important things to do. And yet the Lord says, not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. He comes bringing the Holy Spirit because that's what this church definitely needs. But Jesus skips right by what He normally does in the letters and that's He normally brings a a commendation. This time, He skips the commendation for Sardis and He heads straight into His concerned or concerted criticism. Continue on. He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you're alive, but you are dead. And what is a body without a spirit? Dead. This is the dead church. But wait, Sardis thinks they have a name. In fact, Sardis is deeply invested in their name. The word name here is interesting. It's onoma in the Greek, which is where we get our word denomination. You have an onoma. You you think you're alive in this onoma, in this name of yours, but you're dead. It got me thinking about church names. It's interesting. We do a lot of things with church names. Some get their names from their human founders. You've got Lutheran, Wesleyan, Calvinist, Arminian... Bridgian, you know. People get their names from the founder. I think about Paul saying, 1 Corinthians 3.12, each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I, I am of Christ. Paul says, has Christ been divided? You ever ask the question, how did this happen? How did we end up with so many different versions of the church? So many different groupings, if you will, of the church? Well, it's because people look to the founder and they say, well, Luther had it together. So you have Lutheran. You know Martin Luther was a raging anti-Semite? Martin Luther was not an altogether man. God used him mightily. But he was no more perfect than you or me. He had faith in Jesus. And that made the difference. Some people will use their church name simply to distinguish themselves 
from that church down the road. We want to make sure that you know that we're not them. We're not like them. I like to use church names when I get in trouble. You know, if a police officer pulls me over to give me a ticket, it hasn't happened recently. But if he pulls me over and he says, aren't you a pastor? And I, 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 yeah, of Methodist church. <laughs> Distinguishing ourselves rather than unifying under the one name of Jesus. It's one of the things that I long for. It's one of the things I do love about the first century church is you had the church of Sardis and the church of Philadelphia. You had the church of Ephesus. You had the church of Smyrna. There was just one church in the town. If you didn't like it, I don't know, move. Go to the next town. There's just one church. Just one place where the Christians gather together. Some will hold up their church name and say, we have a name, and they will ride that name right into the dirt. Deep into the ground until the church is just buried and ineffective. Some water down the name. I like this one. They'll leave Jesus' name out completely because they want to seem more you know, relevant to society. They'll leave the name church or the word church out of the name. Or they'll use anything but Christian. Or they'll use, this is even better, use an acronym. What do you do Sunday morning, BCF? What is that? Well, you know, it's just a gathering. It's kind of cool. You should come to BCF. I hate that. Don't call this place BCF. Where the bridge Christian Fellowship. Or church, you can say church, I'm fine with church. As an independent, or as independent community churches began to rise, something else was interesting that people began to do with names and denominations. They began to hide the denominational name in favor of calling themselves a community church. All you'd have to do is dig a little bit and you find out, you're not a community church, you're part of that group. Who are you trying to kid? Who are you trying to hide from? Trying to hide from the old reputation. Like the billboard that right now is out on Highway 20. Perhaps you've seen it. It reads BibleStudyOffer.com. Anybody gone to it? Hey, Bible Study Offer! That sounds great! You know what it is? It's Seventh-day Adventist. Now it doesn't say that on the sign at all. And in fact, if you go to BibleStudyOffer.com, I did, you're not going to find Seventh-day Adventist anywhere on the website. You cannot find it. Well, what's the problem with that? It's bait and switch. Say who you are, man. Tell us who you are. Why hide the name? That always concerns me when a church group says we have to hide the name. Because people will think something. Well, why do they think that? Where's the reputation come from? Here's the bottom line. You have an ono ma that you are alive, but you're dead. We are not here to make a name for ourselves. We are here to speak the name of Jesus. To glorify the name of Christ. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved, Acts 4.20. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, Philippians 2.10. You have a name. But your name is dead. Hey, we do have a name, don't we? And His name is Jesus. Verse 2, wake up. And strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. What does that sound like? They started well. Started off on the right foot. I haven't found your deeds completed. So Jesus now brings his clear correction to Sardis. I have not found your deeds. Deeds completed. That's interesting because we just came out of Thyatira where he uses the same word deed five times 
in the negative. Your deeds. You're all about your deeds. And your deeds can't save you. We realize that. However, here what Jesus is talking about is unfinished deeds that reveal unfaithfulness. A poor follow-through. What we might call unfinished business. Let me ask you personally this morning, what is yours with the Lord? What's your unfinished business? What does God ask you to do that you're not doing? What has God invited you to step into that you have not followed through? What is the unfinished business of your life in Christ? I have to deal with the same question. We need to think about these things. What fired you up at the beginning, but perhaps today is smoldering like embers? Jesus would say to you, to me, wake up. Wake up! Or as Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.6, Kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Oh, that's interesting. The gift was given through the laying on of my hands. What does that indicate? It indicates what stokes the fire of faith. It indicates what stirs up the embers that perhaps are sleepy, if not dead. The laying on of hands? Look at verse 3. So remember, remember, remember what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. Remember. Keep it and repent. If you need three R's, remember, retain, repent. Okay? Remember, retain, and repent. Remember what you have seen and heard, or what you have received and heard. Okay, what have we received? We've received the Holy Spirit, right? We've received the Spirit, which is why Jesus comes to Sardis bringing, again, the Holy Spirit. John 20, verse 22, He breathed on them, the eleven. He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.38, Peter stood up in front of all people. He said, Repent, each one of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. We have received the Holy Spirit of God. And so Paul says to Timothy, I, remember when I laid hands on you? Stir it up. What you received at that time, what did Timothy receive? He had received the Spirit and the giftings and anointings of the Spirit so that he could function in ministry. Remember what you have received. And, and Jesus says, remember what you have received and heard. What have we heard? God's Word. God's Word. Remember what you have received and heard. Isaiah 55.10 The Lord says, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. We receive the Spirit. We have heard the Word. The Word of God. There's an interesting paragraph. 
and it's it's in the uh, church, the history of the church by Eusebius. I don't know if you have that book. That's a, it's an interesting book to have. He wrote around the fourth century, the history of the church, and, and there's a paragraph in there. I ran across it reading one day that is purported to be a handwritten note of Jesus written to a disciple. I thought it interesting. Curious. I felt a little weird even reading it because it wasn't in the Bible. I'm like, oh. Close the office door. (laughs) And I was so excited to think for a moment that I could be reading something that was handwritten by Jesus Christ until I paused to recognize I've been reading something written by God my entire life. And you know even better? Listen, these letters that we're reading, these letters to the church, you know what's happening right here this morning? Jesus is speaking to you. This isn't just a purported or possible or curious little note that Jesus penned and sent off to a disciple somewhere that has nothing to do with me and no biblical application to how I'm living my life. No, these are letters that Jesus chose to write to you and to me right now. Here today, we have received His Spirit and we have heard His Word. What does it take to spark flames of reformation? The Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And if I'm lacking in either one, I'm not going to be as fired up. Spirit and the Word. Oh, Psalm 138, verse 2. David says, You have magnified Your Word above all Your name. So important is the Word of God. And to receive the Spirit of God Himself, the Spirit received, the Word heard, but the flame of reformation died out. How can you say that, Rick? Denominational churches are around today. Yes, they are. But many of them have gone the way of the world. There are some of you sitting here this morning who have left a particular denomination because of decisions being made by the overall denominational board that are of the world, not of the Spirit. We're watching this happen. Denominational churches dying right and left. How could the fires of reformation of men like Wycliffe and Huss and Luther, how could it die out? Poor retention. Poor retention. Remember what you received, the Spirit, and heard the Word, and keep it, He says. Jesus says, keep it. Understand this, and if you're new to Christian faith, please get this. Faith is not a flash in the pan. Faith is not something that fires up and then we're done and we move on and we get back to real life. No. Faith is a long-haul, lifelong journey. Faith is what we learn to keep every moment of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year, of every decade, of every life. It's your whole life. It is not something that happened back there at one time. It is constant and ongoing. And yet after a time, this Protestant movement, this protesting movement, actually began to quench the Spirit. And the more the Spirit was ignored and quenched, the more the Word became dry and lifeless. So the Word was set aside. 
And of course, then we had to replace them with something. Got to have some reason that we're getting together. And so in the 90s, and we can go back further and talk about so many different movements in the church. Let me tell you, after being in ministry 30 years, I've seen movements come and go. I've been a part of some. I was so excited to be part of this movement. It's gone. Just reaching back to the 90s, the Protestant Evangelical Church brought us the seeker-sensitive movement. Not a bad idea to be more sensitive to non-believers and really to be more intentional with bringing the gospel to the non-believer. I like the idea behind it, but this movement began to fan out and suddenly denominational churches were signing up to be a part of the Willow Creek movement. Great. Okay. Well, then along with that came the purpose-driven church. Got to be purpose-driven. You know how many churches had their boards meet and spend hours and hours and hours trying to come up with five purposes based on the five purposes of the purpose-driven church, five ways that we can present this to our church, and thinking this was spiritual. Now, maybe in some places it was. But I saw at least two different churches that I was a part of try to function in this and, and come up with these creative little buzzwords for the five purposes. Of course, and then the aughts came along, and it was the emergent church. Oh, the emergent church, yeah. And the missional church, if you've heard the words emergent, or, or missional actually is more easily accepted in denominational churches because missional sounds like mission, which we're supposed to have, right? The missional church became a big deal. You know what we have today? We have the culture-sensitive, non-offensive, watered-down, tolerant church. Our culture, our culture, you all know this, is so sexually saturated. It's just, it's unbelievable how far, just in my lifetime, entertainment, music, movies, books, the internet is just, it is a constant Barrage! I have never seen American culture, if not the world, so fleshly. And the church is just trying to keep up. See, that's the problem. We ought to be trailblazing, and yet through all of these different movements down all the decades, the church is always trying to catch up to what culture is doing. That's not our job. We are so far out of he- ahead of culture if we just stick to the Word of God. Let culture catch up to Jesus. But we're always trying to catch up. And so now, now you've got, well, you've got the sex-saturated society. You've got gender identity and gender fluidity and all kinds of gender confusion. And you know what's happening in the church? One pastor called it the defining issue of the church of our day. You've got seminaries denominational boards, Christian colleges that are now going so far because we got to meet culture where it is that they are rethinking the creation story of Adam and Eve and how we can recast it to fit this relativistic culture where it may not be a man and a woman in a relationship. So we need to reformat this for the current Culture, and that, my friends, is a picture of a church with no spirit and no truth. 
And Jesus said, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Which is not just talking about a Sunday morning worship service. Spirit and truth. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God, which we have received and heard. Remember and keep it. And yet the two most absent things in Protestant, Reformed, and Evangelical Christianity today are the Spirit and the Word. Now you've had some turn around, some churches saying we've got to get back to the Word. And so there's interest in preaching the Word. And I see that starting to stir up a bit. What about the Spirit? But then there are other segments of Christianity where the Spirit is being pursued big time. What about the Word? Remember what you've received and heard and keep it. And Ephesians 4.30, Paul says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then Amos prophesied, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God. Amos 8.11 When I'll send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. And people will stagger from sea to sea. We might say people will stagger from sea to shining sea. And from the north even to the east, they will go to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Remember, he says, what you have received and heard, and keep it, and do what? Repent. Repent. Repent is that word we've already seen, metanoeo. It becomes a very important word in our study through Revelation. Repent. But but note this, look at this. Why is it that the keeping comes before the repentance? Isn't that a little backward? Shouldn't it be... Remember what you've received and heard and repent. Or actually, shouldn't it just be repent? (laughs) And then remember what you've received and heard and and then keep it. I mean, shouldn't repentance come first? And here's the reality. It is the Spirit and the Word that change the mind. It's the Spirit and the Word that brings about repentance. You might, I might not even know I need to repent. And then I open up God's Word and I begin to read His letter directly to me and I go... I gotta change my mind on a few things here. I gotta change, I need to repent. The Word convicting, the Spirit calling me out. Remembrance and retention will bring about the very repentance that Jesus calls for. And note this, he says, therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Just as the city of Sardis was asleep on their watch. You know that when Sardis was invaded by Cyrus the Persian, he took from the city treasuries the equivalent in today's money of $600 billion in treasure. Like a thief in the night, he came in. Stole it all away. And in the same way, so the once Protestant, now dead church of Sardis is in danger of losing their greatest treasure. The man, remember the man who who bought the field with all he had? He's coming back. And he's coming to take his treasure out. 
by all indications, what he's saying here as he's speaking again to this church, to this system of the church, to these people in the church. If you don't wake up, I'm coming like a thief. What is that? It's the rapture. Unquestionably. I am going to come and take out my treasure. My treasure of the church. still has some work to do with his treasure Israel. That's another teaching which will come up in a little while. I am coming to take out my treasure, and yet some sitting in church will miss it. I thought everybody's going to be taken up in the rapture. I'm not so sure. The warning comes to Sardis. The warning comes to believers. If you don't wake up, those who have an aim, well, I'm of this denomination, I'm of that group, I'm of the other. Hey, I've got an aim. I'm Baptist or Methodist or Lutheran or Mormon. Of course, that's another thing. I'm this. Well, great. And you're asleep in that name. The only name that saves is Jesus. And it's the name that we have faith in. His name. That will cause us to be drawn, caught up, to be immediately in His presence. And He won't come like a thief. But Jesus Himself said in Matthew 24-43, Be sure of this, if the head of the house had known what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. He's coming, Jesus says, at a time you do not think He will. People have asked me, Rick, why do you reference the rapture so often? Because I don't want to think there's ever a time that he might not come. Because I personally, forget about y'all, I just want to be ready. I'm kidding. But we are called to be a people on the alert. Think about this. If we only talk about the rapture of the church on Sundays and Wednesdays, how many times during the week do you not think he's going to come imminently? How many times do you think, well, not today? Or maybe you're not even thinking at all. He's coming at a time you do not think He will. But Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.4, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night or of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do. Let us be alert and sober. Let's not be like the sardines. (laughs) Let's not be sleepy. By the way, because he says, I'm going to come like a thief in the night. Some of you, if you're asleep, if you don't wake up, you are going to miss my coming. Mainline Protestant churches tend to be amillennial. That is no, no belief in the rapture. No literal return of Jesus. No literal coming kingdom age that the Bible very clearly declares and is promised. So just no, eh, you know. And to no fault of my parents, that's how I was raised. God's going to come. And I would ask, well then what? Then it's over. Then what? Well then we go to heaven. And do what? And I had for years and years as a child a picture of sitting on a cloud plucking my harp. (laughs) I would so much rather be, you know, catching snakes or riding my bike through town or can I have a bike in heaven? No, you'll fall through the cloud. Wow, I don't know what to do with that. (laughs) 
No explanation of what's coming or where we're going. That's one of the reasons I love Revelation so much is it gives so much information about where we're going and about what is coming. There, there are those who are indifferent to the rapture altogether. They just take what's called the promillennial view. Promillennial. I'm all for it. You know, whatever. Yay, God. <laughs> whatever He's going to do, let, let, that's fine with me. I don't need to know. Why? Why don't you want to know? Especially when He's told us what's coming. Just remember this. Jesus only comes like a thief to those who are sound asleep and those who are not keeping watch. He only comes as a surprise and removes His treasure from those who are not paying attention. Now, in the P.S. to Sardis, and I know the hour is late, but this isn't even touching a Wednesday night, so be comfortable. Verse 4, But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, a few names, literally. You have a few onoma. I like that. He, he pings off that same word. You say you have a name, but you're dead. There are a few names there in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments. This is important. Please catch this. The word soil is emolanon. Doesn't matter if you write that down, but it, it's translated also stain and defile. It's only used three times in the New Testament. Just three times. I think that's worth noting because one time is right here. You have a few who have not soiled or defiled their garments. What are the other two uses of this word? First Corinthians chapter eight, verse seven, where Paul says, Some being accustomed to the idol until now, eat as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. There's the use of the word. So that is a reference to idolatry. Okay, remember that. Second use outside of this letter, Revelation 14, verse 4, which says, These are the ones who have not been defiled with women. They've kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. So in that case, defilement is sexual immorality. Idolatry and sexual immorality. These are the two things that, according to Scripture, defile a person. And here at Sardis, he says, you only have a few people who are not defiled. What does that tell you? It tells us that the two primary sins, if you recall this, the two primary sins of Thyatira, sexual immorality and idolatry, are still going on in the Reformation church. You've changed the name. You've altered the exterior. But if the heart doesn't change, the nature stays the same. You have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. But there is a remnant who are not defiled. Who are they? These are the ones who follow the Lamb, who trust in the name of Jesus. And they will walk, verse 4, watch this, they will walk with Me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase His name from the book of life, and I will confess His name before My Father and before His angels. And here in the PS, He says, I'm going to confess His name. Note, He doesn't say, I'm going to confess His church's name. Oh, He went to the bridge. Make sure you get Him a nice seat up front. Oh yeah, he was part of the British Christian Fellowship. Yeah, he needs a good table. 
He says, I will confess his name. Joe Phillips, he'll say. Joe Phillips is here. Hey, angels, Joe Phillips is here. Joe's here. Amen. Amen, Joe. All the rest of us are going, how can you get in? By grace alone. Right? Joe's here. Do you realize what it's telling us here? I will confess His name before my Father and before His angels. Jesus is going to confess your name in heaven. Your name will be spoken. You don't even have to speak your name. Uh, Rick, am I on the list? Rick Crawford? Before I even say anything, I walk up and Jesus goes, Rick! Rick's here! Hey, angels, Father! Rick is here. He declares the name ringing through the halls of heaven. All of those who are overcomers. Because they confess the name of Jesus. He says, if you'll confess my name on earth, I'm going to confess you in heaven. But some read this and they say, okay, but I'm a little concerned here. He says, if you overcome, I will not erase his name from the book of life. Wait a minute. Can a name be erased from the book of life? Do me a favor. Don't turn the promise into a threat. This is not about whether or not a name can be erased from the book of life. This is about the fact that the name will not be erased from the book of life. And we go right to the negative. Well, it says right there, a name can be erased. No, it doesn't. He says he won't erase your name. In my opinion, when your name goes into the book of life, your name's in the book of life. And it will not be blotted out. It will not be erased. That's the promise He's making here to those who overcome. Your name is in and I will never take it out. And this is a coming confirmation. He says, They will walk with Me in white for they are worthy. Dressed in white garments. Wait a minute. Where does a person walk clothed in white? right down the aisle to meet the groom. This is a bridal picture. Revelation 19, verse 7, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready, and it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Wait a minute, what are the righteous acts of the saints? Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, The righteous will live by Faith. Faith. Faith in the one name. Faith in Jesus Christ. And verse 6 he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We have another word for spirit, don't we? We say heart. I hear Jesus saying, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear my heart. Oh, Jesus, let us hear Your heart this morning. Let us hear Your heart, Lord. Your deep, deep love. Father, we all have traditions of one sort or another that we've come out of. Or that we consider ourselves part of. We all can look back and say, that's where I came from. Father, some of those traditions were very good. And we thank You. We thank You for churches that taught us to open the Bible in the first place. For churches that taught us to sing as children, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. 
We thank You for traditions and, and customs and systems that, that brought us to faith, that opened the door, that helped us to see You and to embrace Your Word and to receive Your Spirit. And so we don't bemoan those things and we certainly don't want to sit here and just bash on churches other than the bridge. Lord, as Your purpose is to draw us near to You, as Your purpose is to open our eyes, shake us awake, and breathe life into anything in us that is dead, so we pray, Holy Spirit, come among us. We pray, Lord Jesus, kindle afresh the gift that was given to us by the laying on of hands. We pray, Father, make us a passionate people. Lord, I extend, I pray that prayer for Your entire church in this nation and in this world. Would You kindle the fire? A new reformation, if You will. But not just to reform, but to cause us to be fresh and new in Jesus Christ once again. Embolden us, impassion us, Father, with the truth and with Your Spirit. We know the time is short. Lord, may we never be caught like Sardis, dead asleep, but wide awake and sober until the final day. Find us awake, Father. And Lord Jesus, when You come, we pray You will find faith. Even if it's a remnant, find faith on this earth. Draw out faith, I pray, among us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.